And I think everybody would agree with that, that we want to take every precaution that we can. Vancouver considers mandatory masks in some places. And the warning from a once perfectly healthy COVID long hauler. I certainly don't want anyone to go through what I've been going through. Child care fact check. A breakdown to help parents decide which party is best for them. And an explosive nightmare. I lost my house to a f one night of fun for somebody. The mishap that still burns five years later. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll get to those stories in just a moment, but we want to start with some breaking news. Vancouver has given the green light to a controversial overdose prevention site in Yaletown. With a 7-4 to four vote this afternoon, City Council approves the new OPS at a city-owned property at Seymour and Helpkin, right across from Emory Barnes Park. Opponents rallied against the site, fearing it would bring more problems to an area already struggling with crime and homelessness. But advocates say a controlled indoor place for drug users will make the neighborhood safer for everyone. More coverage coming up throughout the night. That move comes as new numbers show illicit drug overdoses in B.C. fell in September. Over the month, 127 British Columbians lost their lives. That's down 15% from August, but still means an average of more than four people dying every day, representing a 112% increase from September of last year. The crisis cuts across all walks of life, with the vast majority of those dying men aged 30 to 59. Since the beginning of the year, nearly 1,200 people in B.C. have died of drug toxicity or an overdose. Now to some more breaking news in Burnaby, where one person has died in an apartment fire. Firefighters were called to the three-story building in the 200 block of Hold'em Avenue around 3.30 today. Crews found heavy flames and smoke pouring from a suite on the first floor. One man was found inside. First responders tried to save him, but he did not survive. Three other people escaped and were treated for smoke inhalation. The fire has now been knocked down and the cause is under investigation. Now to COVID-19 in our province and the latest numbers. We have 167 new confirmed cases of the virus, bringing BC's total to 11,854. Sadly, we've had one more death, which means we've now lost 254 people. 69 are in hospital, 18 patients in ICU, 9,871 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 1,688 active cases and 4,156 people in isolation. The push is on to make Vancouver the next lower mainland city to require face masks in civic facilities, with a coalition of healthcare and other professionals supporting a motion before council. The issue taking on new urgency after hundreds of anti-maskers and COVID deniers protested in the city over the weekend. Nadia Stewart reports. Indoors and outdoors, most Vancouverites are used to donning masks. Now efforts are underway to introduce a mask mandate for civic facilities. 
I think there's been a reluctance to do it before it was mandated by the provincial health officer. Uh, and I think that the science now is quite clear. MBA councillor Sarah Kirby-Young penned the motion Vancouver City councillors are now considering. She says despite early debate over the effectiveness of masks, over time they've proven to be a useful tool in limiting the spread of the virus. The medical community has not seen this virus before. Um, it's different um, in the strength and resiliency with which it's coming back in phase two. We know that professionals are saying that and they're adapting their advice and I think we need to follow suit. Not everyone agrees with that. Bonnie Henry's a Speaking for themselves, those who attended last weekend's Freedom Rally expressed disdain for both masks and the media. I'm from Eastern Bloc and I can tell you, I can smell fake news. Everything what you guys are doing is manipulating public. Non-medical masks have been the subject of much debate right from the start. Leading health professionals have changed their stance over the last six months. Over the weekend, America's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, explained his own change Number of heart. Meta-analysis studies show that, contrary to what we thought, masks really do work in preventing infection. No doubt. So, so no doubt. The grassroots advocacy group Masks for Canada is endorsing the call for a mandate, saying it will help eliminate confusion. We understand it is not perfect. Nothing is perfect or we'd be rid of this by now. To add another one, um, another layer of protection, it can only help. Kirby Young's motion will be up for debate on Thursday. Nadia Stirk, Global News. 190 B.C. firefighters are now returning home from helping tackle California wildfires. Beginning in, uh, beginning in September, they were all sent to the state to help battle a string of destructive and even deadly fires. But now, because of pandemic protocols, their return means two weeks in isolation at a hotel or at home, while at least three of the crew have tested positive for COVID-19. The three individuals that tested positive um, are now in a, a facility in Richmond. And then the rest of the firefighters that were in Oregon and California, they've all returned back to B.C. Um, and are quarantining uh, somewhere in Richmond uh, in a facility there that's been uh, deemed for those returning back to uh, Canada to quarantine in. And then some are quarantining in their homes if they're able to. And back in California, nearly 9,000 firefighters from across the United States remain on the lines. There are 21 fires still burning and considered dangerous. Days after the official search was suspended, the parents of a UBC grad student missing in Manning Park are desperate to find their son alive. Ted Chernecki has more on the clues that led to the private search for Jordan Naderer and the key information his loved ones say they still need to help bring him home. The Newfoundland parents of 25-year-old Jordan Natterer are refusing to give up on their missing son. The search in Manning Park was suspended Saturday, but on Sunday night, a hiker found sunglasses and a hat belonging to Jordan. So today, at great personal cost, they hired a helicopter, drone, and tracker to resume a private search. I've got hikers and mountaineers coming in. So this is something that's being financed by our own out of, our, out of our own finances, we will do anything we can to find our son. They asked Vancouver police for maps to show where search and rescue had already looked. And they said, sure, no problem, we'll send you everything we've got tomorrow morning. Well, that was four days ago. 
Late today in a statement, VPD said, Search and Rescue are compiling the hundreds of hours searched onto a map, and that information will be provided to the family once it's compiled. The delay is due to the size and volume of files, and that a tip line remains open. The family believes Vancouver Police has been too quick to suspend a search for someone who was prepared for a two-day hike. It was very disappointing after about four, four days and a little bit um, that one would, would suspend a search like this with such a large area and the fact that really thermal imaging helicopters only went over a tiny portion of the total area. Others knowledgeable about search and rescue protocol agree. You know, he could be alive, he could have a fire, he could be down in a cave. Uh, I'm optimistic still. It's getting cold. This is not the time to be waiting around. We need to get, uh, we can need to get this search underway. He's made a formal request to the Department of National Defense to resume the search immediately. Jordan's parents say their son is smart, resourceful, and is still alive, preserving energy possibly near water, waiting to be found. He's really bright, and I think he's out there waiting for us to find him. Ted Scherneke, Global News. On the campaign trail today, NDP leader John Horgan is spending the day on the Lower Mainland, turning the lens on seniors and improving health care. Horgan held a meet-and-greet with seniors in Coquitlam this morning, talking about his party's focus on strengthening long-term care in the province. The NDP leader also reiterated plans to meet the health care needs of British Columbians throughout and beyond the pandemic. We heard today the importance of long-term care. Our plan has 7,000 more workers going into long-term care so we can care for seniors, the people who built this province and this country. They deserve our respect. They deserve to spend their latter years in dignity, and we're going to be committed to that. Meantime, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson made a stop in Surrey where he talked about his party's plan for pandemic recovery, attacking the NDP for not being focused on the economy. Wilkinson once again brought up his medical background, explaining how his experience would benefit the province. We're going to have to have a plan to get out of this pandemic recession, and the NDP don't have one at all. We do. We have a serious economic plan to get us through this and help us recover. And secondly, as we go into a pandemic, I like to think it would be helpful to have a medical doctor in the Premier's office talking to Dr. Henry about the best way to do things as we move forward. And B.C. Greens leader Sonia Firstenau pushing a climate-focused pandemic recovery. Firstenau appealing to people in the West Vancouver seat of sky riding to get out and vote. She's hoping the Greens can nab the seat from the Liberals. This is a riding that the B.C. Greens can win. The numbers are telling us that we are very close in this riding. Voters of this riding have the ability to send Jeremy to Victoria to be a strong local voice for immediate relief for small businesses and to push for clean recovery that builds a stronger, more resilient economy in the long term by having climate action at its core. Young working families make up one of B.C.'s biggest constituencies and the Liberals, Greens and NDP are all courting that group aggressively with big childcare promises. The three main parties are all promising to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to create more spaces, train more staff, and make childcare a bigger priority for government. Richard Zussman takes a look at the details. It's a twofold approach. One, help people's wallets. Second, their children. For the first time, we have all three major parties 
making significant childcare promises. Childcare has become a crucial part of the 2020 B.C. election. Here's a look at the plans. The NDP continue to focus on the $10 a day plan, championed by Sharon Gregson, and is committing to it province-wide by 2028. If re-elected, the NDP will work with First Nations, municipalities, and private and public sectors to include childcare spaces in new buildings. And the plan is set to cost $1.5 billion on new childcare funding over three the plan is informed by that research, by the costing that's been done on the 10 plan. The BC Liberals are promising a means-tested program for $10, $20 and $30 a day care to create a universal wait list for all publicly funded spaces and spend $3.3 billion in new child care funding over three years. That We've got to get this $10 a day care program going. What the plan lacks is funding for early childhood educators. And there's no action that they're taking in that plan that's specified to actually increase educator wages. The Greens want to fold child care into the education system promising free preschool for three- and four-year-olds, means-tested free child care for kids under three, and by 2023-24, $525 million a year in new funding. We have the Greens who are promising free child care, but not enough dollars to actually deliver. For experts, it comes down to the child care track record. And even though the NDP are behind where it was expected on $10 a day care, they are still overall ahead of both the Greens and the Liberals. And the reality is that um, the province over the last three years has gone from child care chaos to child care progress. But acknowledging that even with holes in the plans, it's clear child care is now high on every party's agenda. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Lots to ponder for parents there and only a few days left until Election Day. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the shifting voter dynamics we're seeing reflected in this new poll, Keith. Yeah, Angus Reid now, this is the 12th consecutive poll, I think it's actually 13th consecutive poll, that continues, continues to give the NDP a double-digit lead. Never seen that in an election before. But that lead has narrowed just a bit, but it has narrowed. Here are the numbers in terms of decided vote from Angus Reid's latest uh, research. Again, the NDP well in front at 45% of decided voters. That's actually down four points from their last poll a week ago. 35% parked their vote with the B.C. Liberals, up a modest two points. And the B.C. Greens, up a modest two points as well. But the Next uh, slide, I think, really tells the story. Angus Reid also asking people who have already voted, and hundreds of thousands of people have already voted. And the NDP comes out on top there by a wider margin, 51% to 33% for the B.C. Liberals and just 14% for the Greens. Why this is very important, if this holds true, most of the people who have voted are in Metro Vancouver or on Vancouver Island, and that's where the NDP is strongest. That's where their ridings are. So that 51-33, very problematic for the B.C. Liberals if they can't close that gap. We're going to have more people vote ahead of time than we've ever had in our experience. Uh, advanced voting has another day to go. We're going to have uh, probably a million votes already uh, in the bank before people actually go to vote on Saturday. And the way it's tracking right now, it would seem that would favor the NDP more than the BC Liberals. So the gap's narrowing, but not to the point where the Liberals can be considered to be real competition for the NDP on Saturday. All right. Thanks for the breakdown, Keith. Keith Baldry and Victoria for us tonight. Playing tag in space, the historic mission to touch and go on an asteroid and what scientists hope to learn coming up on the news hour. And the man in charge at TransLink says it's time to move on. Why Kevin Desmond is leaving just as some big projects get started. That's later. Right now, though, Vancouver's ban on the sale and use of consumer fireworks can't come soon enough for a family that lost their home in 2015. 
As Sarah McDonald reports, one careless night of Halloween fun sparked a five-year emotional and financial nightmare. While they're a thrill for some, recreational explosives also pose a public safety risk, something Patricia Mitchell learned firsthand five years ago. It was one Roman candle, one minute of fun for that person, and they destroyed the house. Her East Vancouver home destroyed in a devastating fire just days before Halloween in 2015. Her brother and a tenant trapped inside and narrowly escaping as flames erupted. The cause? There were people in this roundabout and they shot off a Roman candle and it landed on the porch. But a Roman candle is like a firebomb. The years since have been challenging, emotionally and financially. Mitchell forced to sell in the midst of a battle with an insurance company that wouldn't help. And whoever tossed that Roman candle, never caught. I lost my house to a f one night of fun for somebody. And then when I'm standing here looking at it, <laughs> you get emotional and angry. She's just one victim of the irresponsible use of consumer explosives, all of which will soon be illegal to purchase and use in the city of Vancouver, with the legal use of fireworks going out with a bang November 1st. Not soon enough for the city's first responders. I think uh, everyone dreads working Halloween night. It's a resource issue too, like other cities that have implemented an outright ban Vancouver is looking to cut costs by cutting back on calls and an onerous permitting system for fireworks. Our drive is to reduce the number of injuries and the amount of property damage that is incurred, but it also is a huge expense upon the department to implement the permitting system. Come November, anyone caught lighting the fuse on any consumer explosives faces a $1,000 fine. The city cracking down on a moment of careless fun for one person. The fire department said one more minute and your brother would have been dead. That can cause a lifetime of damage to another. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Residents in one commercial drive neighborhood woke up this morning to an unpleasant and potentially dangerous discovery. More than 50 bags of demolition debris, including bags labeled as containing asbestos, dumped overnight in the alley behind Semlin Drive. According to strict municipal and provincial rules, that material must be properly disposed of. But because of the cost and perceived inconvenience of that process, scenes like this are becoming very common all across the region. And I'm also noticing when houses are being demolished here, um, the neighbors talk about it a lot, like there's a lot of debris left on the property when houses are being demolished. So it's not just even on the street, it's on kind of houses that are kind of being renovated. So it's getting to be a pattern of behavior. A city work crew has moved the bags out of the alley, and a specialized cleanup crew will properly dispose of the material. Saw some of those images right off the top of that intro there. There have been many stories that have impacted people in the past 60 years, but none of them more powerful and world-changing than the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Ted Chernecki now with the most unforgettable story of the decade. The glass just flames exploded out the front of the World Trade Center. Glass flew everywhere.
There isn't another story more significant in the first decade of the 21st century than the 9-11 attacks. They may have happened in New York and Washington, but the repercussions were worldwide. Commercial air travel would never be the same. Well, I'm stuck up in Canada and the border's closed, they told me. On that day 19 years ago, the U.S. closed all its airspace. Hundreds of inbound international flights suddenly had nowhere to land and not enough fuel to return home. Aircraft suddenly started swarming Canadian airports. At YVR, the taxiways quickly became parking lots for 34 jumbo jets, and no one knew if there was more terrorism in play. I can say that, yes, there will be uh, searches of these aircraft. I'm very worried that we could be going into a war. It quickly became clear American airspace could be closed for days. So what to do with an estimated 6,000 unexpected guests? They started loading them onto buses and taking them to Richmond's Thompson Community Center. We are prepared to deal with 400 people. Very quickly the hotels filled. There was a call for help and Vancouverites responded. We dropped by to see if we could help. Uh, we think we could probably give three or four people a bed for the night. Us and a neighbor, we've got enough to accommodate all these folks. Later, another outpouring of generosity gushed out of the hearts and pockets of Lower Mainlanders. You might recall on October 11th, a month after the attack, Vancouver firefighters went around Vancouver with boot in hand asking for donations. Well, Vancouverites really donated. Here's the check they presented today. A check in the amount of $600,000. It's been very hard for me to come right back here in midtown because uh, on September 11th, uh, my battalion responded with 35 firefighters. And then I came back. Vancouver firefighters were there at Ground Zero, or the pile as it was called, helping in the recovery efforts. And they were there at any one of the dozen or more memorial services every day for their fallen brothers. A camaraderie not lost on the FDNY. Me and my wife went on a honeymoon up to the Well, Everybody in this room. God bless the good people in this world. Ted Chernecki, Global News. After more than five years at the helm of TransLink, CEO Kevin Desmond is stepping down. Desmond took over the job in 2016, and he gets a lot of credit with helping guide the organization through record-breaking ridership growth and advancing the mayor's 10-year vision, leading to some major improvements in service. He also helped guide TransLink through the initial stages of the pandemic and helped develop safety plans. Desmond says he'll be leaving the organization in February to pursue new career opportunities in the United States. Well, with just days to go before the provincial election, a battleground is shaping up in Vancouver. Seats that have traditionally been Liberal or NDP are now in play and up for grabs. Aaron MacArthur looks at what's shaping up to be an interesting fight. For large swaths of Vancouver, voting patterns are cast in stone. East Van ridings are among the safest of safe NDP seats. The West Side, an entrenched stronghold for the Liberals. But changing demographics have left the middle of the city very much up for grabs. The issues here revolve around one thing. The major issue here continues to be housing, particularly for the younger population. I think there's a lot of people who have been affected because of the pandemic. They want to figure out if they can stay here. There are a few ridings in play, but the focus 
is on Vancouver False Creek. In 2017, Sam Sullivan won here by just more than 500 votes. He's concentrating his efforts fighting an overdose prevention site in Yaletown. Everybody wants to talk about public safety. That's the only thing they want to talk about. We have a government, NDP government, that has brought in a lot of people with untreated mental illness and addictions and dropped them in the neighbourhood. Another riding to watch is Vancouver Langara. The Liberals won here handily last time, but Tessica Truong thinks the NDP can break through, focusing on issues of affordability. Whether it's seniors that are low income, whether it's young, young professionals, um, folks who want to become parents soon, um, they've had to make very difficult choices about whether to have kids, um, whether to have kids later, you know, whether they are able to stay in the city that they grew up in and where they work. By and large, most Vancouver ridings will be easily decided possibly on election night. But for the closest races, results will hinge on which party can mobilize their support. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, often lost in the blizzard of news about the pandemic is the plight of the so-called long haulers, people who continue to suffer from the virus long after many others have recovered. Linda Aylesworth has the story of one Vancouver woman who's still struggling weeks later and talks to one of BC's leading experts about the syndrome. <coughs> Katie McLean's journey with COVID-19 started on September 2nd with symptoms of extreme fatigue. It was September 7th that I woke up with what seemed like um, a really bad head cold. It didn't occur to me yet um, when I first was symptomatic that I could have COVID. <laughs> but in spite of wearing a mask and washing her hands, she did. Soon the symptoms evolved. It became like a stomach flu. I got the cough, it got in my chest, rapid heartbeat, feeling really, really fatigued, unable to do anything. Today, seven weeks later, Katie is no longer infectious, but she's also far from well. This little walk will likely cause a relapse in symptoms. Shortness of breath will come back. My voice will get hoarse again. I'll start coughing, um, headaches. It's called the long haul syndrome. The cause, perhaps antibodies generated to fight the virus play a role. And those antibodies themselves can lead to some symptoms in some people. That's 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 one of the explanations for the syndrome. Dr. Chris Carlston was involved in a newly published study that investigated the progress of COVID-19 patients following their release from Vancouver hospitals. At three months following that discharge, there were abnormalities in these tests that we were not expecting to the degree we found them. Among their findings, 50% still had shortness of breath, 42% were frail, and 23% continued to cough. <laughs> Those are the kinds of symptoms that we've heard from other uh, severe viruses in the past, but it remains to be seen if there's something truly unique about COVID-19. That is not to say the virus is not unique. It is absolutely more severe than anything we've been confronted with for a very long time. Who knows when we're going to feel better or be able to go back to work or be able to exercise again, take a walk around the block. I don't know. <laughs> Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Actor Jeff Bridges has revealed he's been diagnosed with lymphoma. Well, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know. This aggression will not stand, man. The 70-year-old is best known for playing the dude in The Big Lebowski and for his role in Crazy Heart, where he won an Academy Award. Bridges tweeting that although this is a serious disease, his prognosis is good and that he started treatment. 
The actor is thanking his well-wishers on social media, promising to keep everyone posted on his recovery. And while he has their attention, he's also encouraging them to get out and vote. Fall air, about as yes. refreshing as a cool pint of lager. <laughs> today, I would say. Yes, absolutely. A good pint of lager would be nice as you're watching this sunset. Yes, a pretty nice fall day. But Chris, I've got some great news for skiers and snowboarders. Yes, we have about an 85% chance that a La Nina year will last through winter of 2020-2021. That's according to the experts at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Science Association. What does that mean for our area? Well, it tends to not mean, like what we get in El Nino years, mild, dry winters. It tends to mean a wet, cooler year. But that doesn't always mean snow at lower elevations. It can, but not always. What is more significant is that we tend to get uh, snow in the mountains. And here's the reason why. This is the general winter La Nina pattern. The jet stream drives in from the southwest, or northwest, I should say, with a high-pressure ridge sitting offshore here. And cooler air masses drop down from the north. And it's the combination of these systems drive along the jet stream combined with that uh, colder air that we get snow in the mountains and we can lower down but definitely sharpen your skiers or your skis that's for sure and speaking of snow we've got uh, snow expected for the mountain passes 15 centimeters for the Coquihalla Allison Pass 10 this is overnight tonight and through the morning hours tomorrow generally tomorrow though we're going to see a pretty nice fall day again a mix of sun and cloud other than a few light flurries and that will be the case on Thursday also it's not until Thursday Thursday night that we're going to see that next major system roll in into Friday morning. Wet weather for the south coast, but snow likely on the North Shore Mountains up towards Whistler and east of Hope. So beware of that. That's into Friday morning. Here's a look, though, at your Wednesday. Pretty nice fall day, as I mentioned. A few flurries in the BC Peace River area and the Caribou region, mainly in the morning. Otherwise, a mix of sun and cloud and near seasonal values. Not only tomorrow, but Thursday. Also, before that next soaker move, in Thursday night into Friday, but it does clear out in time for the weekend. It's going to get cold, though, this weekend. So frosty mornings, that's for sure. And an abstract shot. Love this. From Salt Spring Island. Thank you to Greg Green for that. Greg Green for the red. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Still some colors out there, for Mm -hmm. sure. All right, thanks very much, Christy. A new Metro Vancouver brewery is offering a reward in an effort to help track down the suspects in the heist of some key startup equipment. Boardwalk Brewing is still under construction in Port Coquitlam. But this past weekend, its owner says two large fermenting tanks were stolen from the loading bay on Seabourn Avenue. Both tanks are four meters tall and two meters wide. And they weigh up to 3,000 pounds, or about 1,300 kilograms each. One is stamped NSI on the nameplate. The other is Jiangshu Pretech Machinery. The brewery says the thieves would have needed a crane truck or forklift to move them properly. They'd look exactly like this, yeah. You'd need a flat deck truck, probably like we've used in the past, about a 40 foot long flat deck truck. They'd probably cut it up with plasma cutters and bring it to scrapyards. Or we'd assume they'd be shipped off to um, another province. They'd be sold out of province. Boardwalk had hoped to start test brews in December and open its tasting room in January, but it needs its tanks back. If returned, the brewery says any reward it offers will come with a large supply of beer. We'll let them know if you've seen them. (laughs) All right, Squire joins us now, and uh, a new Canuck is kind of an old Canuck. 
Yeah, you could say that. Remember when Pavel Bure changed his number? That's a hint. Uh, Adam Gaudet has a new contract with the Vancouver Canucks, and now he wants new digits. Uh, numbers I wear, I like to wear something that means something. So we've kind of told you what the number is, if you know Canuck history. I can tell you it's a Hall of Famers number, but it's not 99 or 66. All right, Squire joins us now with uh, sports, and yeah, Welcoming Adam Gaudet back into the fold. Yeah, he got his one-year contract yesterday, and we told you uh, yesterday he did get a one-year deal, and he got new numbers on his new contract. He also wants to celebrate that by changing the number that he wears on his uniform. He wants new digits for 2021, and what he wants is a number we saw one of the greatest Canuck players ever briefly wear in the 90s. Center, center for Once Adam Gaudet agreed to a new one-year deal worth $950,000, the other mathematical equation left to be solved involved the digits on his back. In his three seasons in Vancouver, he wore one jersey, and that was jersey number 88. But not anymore. I had a conversation with Nate Schmidt and Jordy Ben. Um, I, I gave up 88 to get eight. And then uh, Benner wanted it, so unfortunately I gave that up as well. And uh, I chose 96 because that was the year I was born with, and that was kind of the only number left that had any uh, personal meaning to me. And uh, numbers I wear, I like to wear something that means something. Um, but come to find out, 88 plus 8 equals 96, so I guess it all worked Beranek out. To McGilley, over the line, Burray hits for the net, the pass to him, bounces, Beranek hits it, they score! Burray put it in the net! Pavel Burry was the first and only Canuck to wear 96. Pavel sporting it for one season back in 1995. It was a number that was also near and dear to his heart. Pavel originally requested number 96 to honor the day he arrived in North America to play for the Vancouver Canucks on September the 6th, 1991. But then Canucks coach Pat Quinn didn't like the idea of high numbers, so Pavel was given number 10. For Gaudet, it was all about suiting his and his teammates' numerical needs. Schmidt and I, we have the same agent, so uh, so my agent texted me and said, hey, eight's open, you're going to give 88 to Schmidt. And I said, all right, I'll take eight. So so I talked to Schmidt and I said, hey, um, I'm looking to take eight, so 88's all yours if you want it. Um, I have no problem giving it up because I've always worn eight. And then uh, about an hour later, after I texted uh, one of the equipment guys and uh, asked if eight was available, they said yes. And then uh, Benner texted me and was asked, he uh, said, how much you want for eight? I said, oh, oh no. But uh, I ended up giving it to him. Um, I, I respect Benner. He's a veteran in the league. And I thought it was the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a number. And, you know, maybe 96 uh, will bring me some some good luck. I think uh, Beeks texted me and said, 96 is really fast, so I'll be all right. <laughs> okay, we've had the number portion of the show, now the letter portion of the show, or the alphabet portion, if you like. The C's are no longer with the J's. They're going to be with the A's. See what I meant? Uh, word is the Oakland A's will be the Vancouver Canadiens affiliate next year instead of Toronto. The Blue Jays were the C's parent club from 2011 until this year, although they didn't play this year, Vancouver didn't. Oakland actually had been the Canadiens' affiliate from 1999 until 2010. They were also one year their affiliate in the 70s. So they've had a long history with Vancouver, and I think the fact they're a West Coast team makes economic sense more than Toronto being connected with Vancouver.
All right, game one of the World Series, and Clayton Kershaw makes more money in one year than the entire Tampa Bay roster does in one year. I'm not kidding. And so when you make all that money, I think he makes $3 million more than the, the uh, Rays roster. He makes $31 million, they all make $28 million combined. If you make that much money, it should be good. So you see him throwing some strikeouts here. At one point, he had retired 11 straight batters going into the uh, fifth inning. But bottom of the fourth here, and Cody Bellinger, the last time he hit a home run in the playoffs, he dislocated his shoulder celebrating it. So when he got to home plate today, it was the much safer foot tap celebration. Can't dislocate anything that way. Well, I guess you could on an ankle if you really kicked. Um, well, it makes perfect sense in 2020 that the Seattle Seahawks are 5-0, unbeaten, despite their defense allowing on average the most yards against per game. And it's not even close. They allow 471 per game in yards. The next worst is Atlanta at 432 per game. And the Falcons are 1-5. The big reason Seattle is unbeaten is, of course, a lead in average points scored per game, almost 34. And they also have some Hogwarts-like magic in the fourth quarter of games. An unusual year. I can't really put my finger on why it's like it is, but we've had to fight our tails off to get here with the games that we've played and all. Um, I'm really glad those games have happened. Uh, those, and, and we've endured them and, and uh, learned from them, I hope. There's a lot of positives to take out of what's already happened. Um, it's been full of uh, really rich experiences in terms of competing and hanging together and playing for one another and all that kind of stuff. Well, I overcame wide leg pants and wide lapel, so why can't Manchester United overcome this fashion faux pas? And they can in their first Champions League game against Paris Saint-Germain. Bruno Fernandez with the penalty kick there, one nothing. It's 1-1, and then Malcolm Rashford, nice, 2-1. Not sure about the kit, but the uh, result worked out for Manchester United. There you go. The, the intersection of sports and art, which is in the eye of the beholder. Thank you very much, Squire. Here's Andrew now with a preview of Global News at 11, Ann. Thanks, Chris. A serious crash has shut down the Sea to Sky Highway in both directions near Lions Bay. We are checking that for you. And we are also getting a reaction to Vancouver City Council's approval this afternoon of an overdose prevention site in Yale Town. It's a plan that's seen strong opposition from area residents. And we'll hear from Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink, who's stepping down. More on what he thinks is his greatest accomplishment during his time here and the biggest challenge that lies ahead for the transit system. Those stories and more when you join it's tonight, 11 o'clock. Chris. All right, Ann. Thank you very much. And well, today, a NASA spacecraft is making an historic maneuver, landing on the surface of an asteroid hurtling through space. Scientists have big hopes for the small spacecraft and what it could bring home. It's a mission more than a decade in the making, one that could help answer some of NASA's biggest questions. We want to learn about the history of the solar system as a whole. Right now, a small spacecraft known as OSIRIS-REx is making a slow but daring plunge to the surface of an asteroid called Bennu. The spacecraft has been orbiting Bennu for nearly two years, studying its surface from afar and waiting for the perfect window to land. Once on the surface, in a mere 16 seconds, OSIRIS-REx will use a small robotic arm to collect samples of the asteroid, which will eventually return to Earth. Within days, we will know whether we were successful 
and getting that sample from that surface. At an estimated four and a half billion years old, scientists see Bennu as a window into the cosmic past. They believe it was once part of a much larger asteroid, and samples from the surface could offer a glimpse of how our universe formed. Did these rocks with these highly complex chemicals actually seed uh, our kind of system that now turn into the Earth full of life. OSIRIS-REx will remain with the asteroid for several months until Bennu makes its closest pass to Earth in March. That's when the spacecraft will launch a capsule of the asteroid samples back to Earth. It's expected to arrive September 2023. Chris Martinez, CBS News, Los Angeles. Amazing stuff. I, I love NASA. The yeah. ideas always sound like things you think up when you're drunk. Let's put a guy <laughs> in the moon. Let's catch up with an asteroid and land something on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Hollywood did that movie a number of years ago, but now NASA is doing it in, in real life. We'll see what's on board. Uh, and we'll see what's in the five-day again here with uh, a look with Christy before we sign off. Christy? Thanks, Chris. A little chilly overnight, but a really nice fall day on the way for us tomorrow and Thursday before the rain rolls in late Thursday into our Friday. And yes, chilly this weekend, everyone. Ooh, frosty morning on Sunday for rugby. <laughs> you're being warned. warned. Prepare by the coach if you're watching. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. See you later. <laughs>